Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son to be our Savior, the Prince of Peace. We thank Jesus for breaking the power of sin and death and leading us into everlasting life. He has given us peace in our hearts and our minds, and he has given us a wonderful heritage in your family as spiritual brothers and sisters. We can't comprehend how your life-giving spirit has made it possible to live forever. Yet, we claim that wonderful promise. We do not fear the future. Our lives are in your hands. You set us free. You give us indescribable joy to live a victorious Christian life above the trials that we face and the nonsense that we hear around us in this world. Thank you for being with us each day, and especially this day, your Holy Sabbath day. 
We lift our hearts in praise to you, O Lord God. And we remember the way your son taught us to pray. He told us to say these words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last week we considered a powerful portion of scripture. It was Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 10. Written by the Apostle Paul that teaches us to honor the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, we read, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Jesus is our Lord, the Messiah, and whenever we talk about him, we should be honoring his name, the name that his Father in heaven gave to him. Nobody swear using his name, please. (laughs) By the way, you shouldn't be saying, OMG either. Boys, girls, just because you hear your classmates say that, you should not be saying that. It dishonors God's name. Last week we felt a measure of deep thankfulness as we considered that God has glory in mind for each of us. And the glory that he has in mind for each of us is true spirituality. God wants us to learn the way of life that Jesus lived. God wants us to be humble and unpretentious. In other words, we're not fake Christians. He wants us to be like Jesus. Jesus is our example for life. And the pinnacle of his creative work is the creation of his holy, righteous character within his followers. Well, today, I am going to expand upon this theme of glorifying the name of Jesus by looking at the way Jesus understood himself. And I'm going to do this by looking at a very familiar portion of Scripture often used by preachers because of its practical application in our lives. Only this time, I won't focus on the practical application. Instead, I will focus on the theology embedded within the Scripture. We like the Sermon on the Mount because it's practical. It can be applied in our lives, and for many Christians, this message delivered by Jesus has become the basis of social order in their lives. Many Christians say, if everyone would follow the pattern of life as laid out by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, then we would all get along. I agree. There is truth to what they say. But I submit to you that people who focus on the Sermon on the Mount without a predetermined narrow focus upon its practical application, they will see the words of Jesus pointing directly back to him, to him as 
the Son of God. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is much more than practical instructions for a believer. Rather, the Sermon on the Mount is a fundamental statement about Jesus by Jesus himself given early in his ministry out of which everything in his ministry stood upon. His sermon is full of theology and doctrine and the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is limited to moral and ethical instruction is simply off base. So let us begin by reading a couple of verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. A couple of remarkable verses. They tell us about the reaction of the people who listened to Jesus deliver his message. And what was their reaction? They were astonished. So let me remind you for a moment what the purpose of the whole Bible is. The Bible provides us with knowledge about Jesus. The whole Bible, cover to cover, that can direct us into a saving relationship with him. So let's try to picture what was happening on that day on the mount, the side of a hill. Jesus had sat down with his disciples to teach them. And soon there was a large crowd gathered around them listening in. There, a carpenter from a podunk town called Nazareth was speaking in a manner that astonished all who were present. He had no training in higher education. He was not a Pharisee. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't tutored by any great authorities or teachers. People knew him as an ordinary person from a small village, not even a town, a small village living an ordinary life. His words were unexpected. The people were astonished. They were almost speechless. First, the carpenter from Nazareth spoke with authority, unlike a scribe. Scribes did not teach with authority. They did not even speak with authority. They were educated, but scribes merely quoted words from other experts. Their primary feature was an endless stream of quotes from other sources. That's why they're called scribes. They were scribes. They gave the impression of knowledge and education. They gave the impression they were cultured and they were proud of their learning. We are told that the scribes and the Pharisees dismissed Jesus with derision. We read in John chapter 7, verse 15, How is it that this man has learned, has learning when he has never studied? But, John, but Jesus did not speak like a Pharisee or a scribe. Jesus was original. He 
would begin by, by saying, I say unto you. His teaching method was fresh. He was authoritative and he was original. He was confident when he spoke. There was no doubt about what he said and what he meant. He began by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. His words caught everyone's attention. And then his words about himself were breathtaking. Repeatedly, he amazed and astonished those who listened to him speak that day. A good example is just a couple of verses later. Verses 27 and 28 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <laughs> Jesus didn't hesitate to correct the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, a carpenter who had never been to a school of higher learning, said, I say to you. He claimed authority for himself and for his teaching. He did not hesitate to assert that he alone was able to give spiritual significance to the law that was given through Moses. His argument was that the people did not know the spiritual intent of the law given by Moses. The religious people misinterpreted the law. They misdirected the people by reducing the law to a physical level. As long as they did not commit actual physical adultery, the religious people taught that it was okay. It didn't matter. They did not recognize that God is more interested in what a person desires. Jesus stood before the people. He presented himself as the only true interpreter of the law. He regarded himself as the true lawgiver. And he said, I say to you. At the end of his sermon, he said it even more explicitly. Chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Here Jesus said something important about himself. He had just taught about judgment. And then he flat out said effectively, these are my words, listen to what I say, put them into practice, realize who I am, my words are important. Jesus was making a powerful statement about himself. He claimed rock solid authority. The carpenter from the village of Nazareth. Now in case you may think that what I've said so far is only based upon inferences and implications, you need, then you need to read the Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus made multiple rep references to himself. For example, chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me. Jesus didn't say that the people would be blessed 
when they are persecuted for the, for the sake of his teaching. He didn't say that they would be blessed by suffering for the name of God the Father in heaven. He said they will be blessed when they suffer because of him. Jesus knew his followers would suffer because of him. You are wrong if you think of the Sermon on the Mount only as moral and ethical teaching. It is moral and ethical teaching. Jesus explained what the Ten Commandments really meant. Right here at the beginning of his sermon, before he said anything about turning the other cheek, he told his followers to be ready to suffer for him. And then Jesus continued by saying, verses 13 and 14, after telling his followers, his disciples and the people listening, that they would suffer for him. He continued by saying that his believers, that the believers in him are, would become salt of the earth and the light of the world. He said that his followers who are willing to suffer for him, even to die for him, would repeat his teachings, propagate his teachings throughout the world, his words were powerful. And in fact, he said that his followers are unique people because of their relationship to him. They become the salt of the earth. They become light to the world. His followers would be more than just people who, listening, who listen to his teachings and repeat it. How can that be? Well, first of all, we're not scribes. His followers would be salt and light. What was he saying? He was saying that he would change us. His nature would become our nature. His followers would become the light of the world just as he is the light of the world. Jesus, in a powerful way, made an extraordinarily effective statement about his deity and his purpose. He was asserting that he indeed was the long-expected Messiah. As people listened to Jesus speak during his sermon, they were astonished. Who is this man, this carpenter from Nazareth? Who asks us to be ready to suffer for him? Who is this man who tells us to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because your reward is great in heaven. If you suffer injustice and persecution for my name, who is this man? Who is this man who will make us the salt of the earth, the light of the world? Jesus gave us the answer in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, Jesus said, I have come. Was he referring to coming from Nazareth? No. Where did Jesus come from? You got it. Jesus came from heaven. Jesus meant that he had come 
into this world from eternity past and from heaven just as the law and the prophets in the Old Testament had foretold. The prophets often wrote about someone who was to come and change the way mankind would be in relationship with God. When Jesus said, I have come, he was referring to his incarnation. He willingly gave up the glory of heaven. He emptied himself and he was obedient to the point of death on a cross. When Jesus said, I have come, he meant that he was the predicted Son of God in human form. And when he said he had come to fulfill the law, he was claiming that he satisfied every demand of the law. I was talking with a fellow Protestant the other day. And I get so tired of hearing this argument. Who said, who used this very, very verse to justify Sunday keeping. I do not know where so many believers get this concept that Jesus came and fulfilled the law, therefore the law ended. Where where do they get this concept from? I can't find it in scripture. Jesus fulfilled the law by fulfilling it completely. He didn't eliminate it. The Ten Commandments are still there. The command to observe the Sabbath didn't disappear. When he said he had come to fulfill the prophets, he was claiming that he was the one whom the Old Testament prophets had pointed toward. In effect, he said, I am the Messiah, the ones the prophets foretold. Another one of the powerful statements Jesus made about himself in this amazing sermon is found in chapter 7, verse 21. Yes, this sermon covers three chapters, five through seven. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't tell, he he didn't hesitate to tell his audience that people would address him as Lord. He wasn't being cocky. He knew who he was. He said here quite calmly that people are going to say to him, Lord, Lord. His emphasis was that people will recognize him as Lord. Jesus was emphasizing his position in God's family. Jesus did not hesitate to ascribe to himself reserved for deity. And he took it a step further. In response to many who call out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, Jesus said to those who, some who will call out, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Not only did Jesus claim to be the Son of God, foretold in the Old Testament, but he claimed to be the judge of all mankind. And what really matters is a person's relationship with him. The people who heard 
his sermon that day were astonished. And I suspect there were many people who were deeply moved. You know what? There were also some angry people, people who are shrouded in pride and arrogance. Just try to imagine the impact Jesus made on his audience that day. There he was, just a carpenter, standing on a hillside with a large crowd before him. He said, in effect, I'm here now before you today, but on another day, I'll sit on the throne of God Almighty with all the nations kneeling before me, and I will pronounce judgment. That's what he was saying. It was an amazing sermon. No one had ever heard another person speak like that, ever. And it wasn't just the way he taught. The content of his teaching was also astonishing, especially the things he said about himself. We should not be astonished by his sermon. And more than that, we should also recognize that he was God's only son who stepped into this three-dimensional world of time and space, speaking the central truths of the gospel message that day on a hillside in Galilee. He had come to fulfill the law, and he came with the message that no one can trust in themselves or their natural abilities In the matter of their salvation, he said that the Pharisees and the scribes had misinterpreted the law of Moses. He said that the law itself was primarily spiritual, not physical. During his ministry, he would say that we need a new birth. He would say we need a new nature, a new life. In his sermon, he said that he came to give us this new life. He said that in relationship with him, we become the salt of the earth and light to the world. He didn't come simply to outline his teaching. He came to transform believers into his own likeness. In this sermon, he gave us a list of what a follower of Jesus should be, how they should act. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of Jesus' followers, of people who would receive the Holy Spirit and be conformable to Him, Jesus. His instructions that we call the Beatitudes, be like the attitude of Jesus, Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are a true description of a follower of Jesus who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. A person who has the blessed experience of the promises made by Jesus being realized in his or her daily life. What should your reaction to the Sermon on the Mount be? (laughs) Yes, like the crowd that day, who heard his message, you should be astonished. Yet even more, you should realize that Jesus was the Son of God and that he came to start a new nation. You've heard me 
name this nation many times. What is the name of the nation that Jesus came to start? The nation of Jesus. Jesus was the firstborn of that nation and all who placed their faith in him become a member of that nation just like him. His message was astonishing. We know that his words are true. Why? Because we can see the incredible change that has already been made in our individual lives and that continue to be made as we become something far different than we ever imagined we could be. We become something far different than we ever were before we said yes to God's Holy Spirit power and allowed the Holy Spirit to direct our lives. Yes, we are conscious of the fact that the Holy Spirit within us has changed us. And the Holy Spirit is continually, incrementally changing us during this time of training on planet Earth, during the 80 or so years that we have. And isn't it great that our shortcomings, our imperfections are revealed to us? Yeah, we mess up. I certainly do. I've got some significant imperfections. Holy Spirit reveals them to me. Yet we have within ourselves the desire, and with Holy Spirit power, we have the ability to change. To change and do what is pleasing to our Father. And then, amid all the trials, the problems of life, despite living in a world where death is certain, and knowing that every knee will eventually kneel before Jesus, we can agree with the Apostle Paul. I know this is one of Sister Laura's favorite verses. We can agree with the Apostle Paul that I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. With that, I will say, Amen. Hallelujah. Close by.